difference of opinion <laughs> but I think the reason she can do that unlike me is she can multitask she can actually have a story that has nothing to do with anything that she's talking about and then go right into it I, I'm more of a one track person so uh, the bell ringer story I thought it was funny but anyway uh, Thank you for praying for Michelle. She really, she really needs our whole family's just been hit with a number of things. So I, as the week went on and she wasn't getting better, I kept saying, you're going to have to make a decision what to do. Do you want me to take your notes to somebody? And then I'll do it. So anyway, I, I said, I'll teach for you, but I really, what I meant was you don't really want me to. But here I am, so it's my pleasure to serve you and serve her and serve the Lord. Now let's open to Romans chapter 12. This is a bit new for me. What my wife would cover in a half hour would take me two years. <laughs> a, little, a little new, but I understand we go to about 11. I'm going to try to cover the whole chapter. Now understand this. Let's just quickly review. The, the book of Romans is about the righteousness of God. We don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves. And so Romans chapters 1 through 11 basically is Paul telling us that salvation is in Jesus Christ. We have no intrinsic righteousness. We have nothing with which to stand before God and say we're good people. We are lacking. We are sinful. And so the gospel message is the righteousness that we don't have. Jesus Christ has. The God-man came to, to earth to die for sinners like us. The moment we trust him alone for our salvation, not trusting in Christ and church or Christ and good works, the moment we trust him for salvation, God applies his righteousness to our account. The, the big word for that, the big theological word, is justification. It means the act of God whereby he declares us righteous in his sight. Now that doesn't mean that our behavior is always going to be righteous. It, it simply means that as far as God is concerned, he takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it on our credit. It, we say he imputes it to us. That's why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are no works that enter into our salvation apart from the work of Christ. So that's essentially the message of, of chapters 1 through 11. And then Paul explains the benefits of that. We've been adopted. We've been forgiven of our sins. That's the message there. When you come to chapter 12, the, the tone of the, of the book changes. Now the apostle becomes very practical. If the whole book is about righteousness, the first part is about God applying Christ's righteousness to us. The second part, from chapter 12 on to chapter 16, is about the practical aspects of righteousness. Meaning this, if you have truly come to faith in Christ, there are certain ways that God commands us to behave in terms of our daily behavior being righteous. And chapter 12 begins us. That is to say, how do we respond now to being saved individuals, if indeed we are? So let's break into chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, 
by the mercies of God. Now let's stop here for a moment. I know we can't stop too long on this, but the mercies of God. What's the mer- what are the mercies of God? Everything that you've studied up to this point. The whole book has been about God being merciful. He's merciful to lost sinners like us. So, based on his mercy, how do we respond? The rest of the book tells us. But here's where it begins. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Essentially, what Paul means by this is that when you consider how kind God has been to you, to save you for all of eternity from the punishment of hell, the most logical thing to do, and that's what it means here, your spiritual service, that that word spiritual means logical. Your logical response is you give him your life. You lay down your life. The imagery here is like an Old Testament priest who brought an animal sacrifice and laid it on the altar, only that animal was dead. They killed it. We are living sacrifices, and we lay ourselves down on the altar, and we say, Lord, in light of how kind you've been to me, the most logical, the most reasonable, the, 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 most, the most wonderful thing I can do is just say, here I am. Here I am. This, in, in the Greek text, is a one-time deal. It's a one-time deal, but every day we have a recommitment of that. Michelle wants me to be sure to say it's like when you get married. You give yourself to your husband. And I'm not saying that, but I guess I am. You give yourself to your husband, but every day is a recommitment of that. It's sort of like that. So, if you are a genuine, saved believer in Jesus Christ, your response is first to say, Lord, here's my life. Not a part of it. Not, not a tithe, 10% of my life. Here's my life, Lord. It's the most logical thing to do. Sometimes I find people are afraid of making a total commitment of themselves to Christ, but that's illogical. Because the fear that sometimes people have, if I really commit myself to Christ, he might, he might call me to do something I don't want to do. He might really mess up my life. That's illogical. If God has been so kind to save you, why would he mess up your life? He's shown you how much he loves you. Why would he ever do anything that wouldn't be the best for you? So the logical thing, give yourself to him. So we give ourselves, but also we're going to have to make sure that we respond properly in our minds. Everything begins in our minds. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. It means don't let the world shape you into its, its mold is the thought here. By world, it's the spirit of this age. Spirit of this age is essentially self-centeredness. It's what we all have apart from Christ. And even when we have Christ, that's our natural bent and tendency to be consumed with ourselves. So he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. means inwardly changed by what? The renewing of your mind. We give our, our bodies, ourselves to the Lord, but we give our minds to him too. And the only way you can be renewed in your mind or transformed by the renewing of your mind is to take in scripture. It's scripture that renews our mind so that, practically speaking, when you are tempted to worry about something, you remember what scripture says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Philippians 4, 6, when you're, when you're tempted to be worried, you think of other verses, casting all your care upon him. You think of the sovereignty of God. That's the renewing of our minds. You, you let scripture control your response and how you think. So 
How do we respond to being saved? We give, him our, we give ourselves to the Lord. We give our minds to Him. Now, let's move on to verse 3. Because when you are a believer, you have to respond not only to the Lord, you have to respond to other people. We don't live in a vacuum, right? You might want to at times, but we don't. We don't live on an isolated island. We have to relate and interact with people. So starting in verse 3, Paul begins to deal with something really known as spiritual gifts. I'll explain that in a moment. But he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. What is he talking about? He's about to talk about being content with the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Many people are not. That's why he's going into this. What is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is a God-given ability to serve him. Everybody, every Christian, has several unique spiritual gifts that, that are formed in you, given the moment of salvation. Now, this is not natural talent. And the reason I say that, if somebody has the ability, let's say, to sing or to play the piano... That's not a spiritual gift. Now, that's a gift from God, but it's not a spiritual gift. And why do I say that? Because non-Christians have those same abilities. But a spiritual gift is unique for Christians. So, we'll talk in a moment about some of these gifts. But but what he's saying is this. Don't be discontent with the way God has gifted you. There are many, and I've met many over the years, especially men who want to be teachers of the word. And they haven't been gifted to be teachers. It's an ego trip for them. Or they're not happy with with the way God has gifted them. Paul's saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. This is especially for men who want to be elders and want to be deacons and want to be teachers. Sometimes that's because they like the spotlight, not because they want to serve the Lord. So he's talking about that. Now, he explains how we function in the body of Christ, why we're not all gifted the same way. Starting in verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to proportion of faith and so forth. What he's talking about is that in our bodies, in a human body, we have various members that function a certain way. And if certain parts of the body stop functioning properly, it affects everything else. When, when I hurt my knee a few years ago, it affected everything. And, and you, it, that's just the way God designed the body. If, if a little toe doesn't feel right, it's going to put pressure on how you walk. It puts your sciatic then is going to hurt. Everything is affected. So everything needs to be functioning properly in a human body for it to perform its duties. In the body of Christ, that's the same thing. The body of Christ is the, is the true church around the world made up of true believers who meet in locations and then there are <coughs> local churches. So each of us, each believer has been gifted a certain way and we've got to function that way, not strive for somebody else's gift. You may be the little toe in the body of Christ, but you've got to function as the little toe. You may be the ear or the nose. Or whatever it is, you've got to function that way. That's what Paul 
is saying, don't think more highly of yourself that I have to be this leader, I have to be someone who's well known. Just be faithful the way God has gifted you. And he mentions a number of gifts. He talks, first of all, in verse 6 about prophecy. Contrary to what this sounds like, prophecy is not always telling the future. The, The word actually means to proclaim. In the early days of the church, it could have meant telling the future as as men would would speak in an inspired way. They spoke new revelation. Today, that's not happening. We have the, the whole, complete word of God. So prophecy would mean preaching, essentially, today. God gives to some the gift of proclaiming his word. He mentions others. Verse 7, if service in his servant, in his serving. I think that's the gift of helps. It's my observation that that's probably the gift that God has given most people. Helps means anything that's helpful. Anything you see to do. It could be serving someone a meal. It could be helping them clean. It could Anything practical that serves others, that's your desire, that's your interest, that's where you want to serve, then do it. That's the gift of helps. And by the way, don't be consumed with, with identifying your gift or gifts, you don't have to. Just, you gravitate to an area you're interested in. If you're interested in serving people, it's probably because you're gifted that way. So, and you can always ask others too, you know, because I've said to certain men, now you may think you have the gift of teaching, but nobody has the gift of listening to you. So, so <laughs> others what they think. So, that's just a little tidbit there. You tell Michelle I was funny. She'll <laughs> All right. It's serving in, in, in his serving. Service, rather. He who teaches in his teaching, that may be your gift. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Exhortation is really encouragement. It's, it's, it's coming along comforting people. He who gives with liberality. We're all supposed to be giving through our local church. But there are certain people who have been given the gift of giving. They are extra generous. They enjoy that. That's what he's talking about here. He who leads with diligence, that's those who who lead. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Some people have the gift of of showing mercy. They they just enjoy that a lot. They're they're a type of people who love to visit in the hospitals and and they're cheerful. So, now, having said that, he's not finished. We also have a responsibility to practically apply the gospel and righteousness to loving other people. Okay, so starting in verse 9, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then notice the very practical ways he tells us to love one another. If we indeed are a body of believers, we are family. We're in the family of Christ. We treat one another as brothers and sisters. So he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That's a tremendous truth. We're all, by our bends, self-centered. And we have to fight that tendency. We are commanded to esteem others more important than their interests more important than ours. That means that we have to be inconvenienced for people. We serve them. We do things. We, we minister to them. We esteem their interests more important than our own. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I, I, I love this because 
Paul says that we are to be zealous in serving the Lord. There are many who are zealous at their work. They may be zealous at home. But if you have a ministry, and you should, that's what spiritual gifts are about. You should be ministering somewhere. Do it with zeal. Use your time wisely. Get up early. Have your quiet time. Then then go do your tasks. That's what he's saying. We are to serve the Lord, never being lazy. The Bible condemns laziness. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope. We, we rejoice, even if life seems to be coming apart, we rejoice because of the hope of someday this is going to end and we're going to be with Christ if you know him. So we rejoice in that hope because it's not always going to be this rough. We persevere in, tri- in tribulation. We're devoted to prayer. This is a confidence we have in the Lord, that he's sovereign. No matter what he brings into our lives, we trust him. We trust him. We say with with Job, and we ought to mean it, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. He goes on to say, contributing to the needs of the saints, that simply means, you know what, There, there are believers who have financial needs, and we're to be sensitive to help them. This is exactly what he's talking about, meeting the material needs of others, and there's always somebody who's needier than you might be. Always. Always somebody, and we are to help those who are poor and have material needs. Practicing hospitality. Now, hospitality is not having your friends over. I mean, that's good to have your friends over to your home, but literally, hospitality is the love of strangers. It's having people over to your home that you really don't know. It's seeing that lonely person at church and saying, can, can you come and kind of take you out for a meal or bring you home? Would you like to come over? The new couple to the church, new family. Now, he moves from loving one another, who you have really no conflicts with, to loving those who you do have conflicts with. And this is the hardest part. But remember this, God always gives grace to do what he commands. Grace is his strength and enablement. So notice, starting at verse 14, here's how we are to respond to our enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We are to bless people, doing, saying nice things about them, even those who don't have nice things to say about us. I think he's primarily talking about non-Christians who persecute Christians, but there are Christians who tend to persecute Christians too and not be nice. So apply it. But he says rejoice with those who rejoice, and we should. Never be jealous when somebody else is treated well. That's something that many of us struggle with, but that's He'll, he'll deal with your enemy in a moment. He's, he's digressing for a moment. Rejoice with those who rejoice. If you see somebody that God is blessing and they've given him a promotion and they make more money than you and, and your family and, and perhaps your husband, you know, where to rejoice. This is God's blessing on them. Never to be resentful or jealous. So he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. If it's a great time with them, just be happy for them. It's God's will in their lives. And weep with those who weep. You come alongside and you cry with those who are crying over the difficulties of life. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. I I love this because do not be haughty in mind, he says, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't be somebody who treats prominent people better than people who are lower in society. Don't show favorites of those who might have money or clout in the community. Always a danger to that. You know, I'm reminded Jesus treated Nicodemus, who was a well-known Bible teacher and esteemed leader in Israel, the same way he treated anybody else. The same way he treated those who were 
of the lowest strata of society. That's a tremendous truth for us. Don't be a name dropper. Don't, don't, don't treat people better because of how they might look or dress or their status in the world. And now he's going to get into the specifics of those who treat us evil. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. If somebody mistreats you, don't mistreat them back. And this is important because we all feel like doing that, don't, don't we? At least in our minds. I know because I'm an expert on this. You know what? I, I, used, to, um, I used to punish my mom. I, I, my mom died 30, 30 years ago. I, I wish you were alive that I could apologize to her. But here's what I did. My mom was a very, very sweet lady. And whenever I didn't like what she did, I gave her the silent treatment. I would just stop talking to her. And I knew that that drove her crazy. And so I became an expert at that. And then Michelle and I got married. And um, I remember, um, like it was yesterday, uh, a conflict we had. And I just stopped talking to her. Because that's that's the habit of how I would respond if I didn't like what someone did to me. And I remember her saying... These words. <laughs> and she said, um, are, you, are you giving me the silent treatment? And I said, no. I just don't have anything to say to you. And she said, let me tell you something. And when my wife says, let me tell you something, I'm in big trouble. Said, let me tell you something. You pulled this with your mom. And it worked, but it's not working with me. You want to play this game, you're going to play it by yourself. And then she closed the door as I was standing outside. And I, I, was, I was just dumbstruck. Because you know what? I didn't, it was so much a part of my life, I didn't even realize it. But I, I, was, I was smitten in my heart because I knew she was right. As I thought about it, I, I did that. And I asked the Lord to forgive me, and I repented. And I said, Lord, I've done this all of my life. Help me. Not to do that. That was my way of paying back evil. And in this case, it wasn't really evil. It was just I didn't like what they said. Don't do that. You may have your own ways of responding to evil. Don't do that. That's a command of Scripture. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what's right in the sight of all men. You'd be respectful, even if they don't treat you well. I mean, look, anybody can treat someone well who treats them well, right? Even before I was a Christian, I did that. There's no virtue in treating people well who like you and treat you well. A non-Christian can do that. It's the true Christian who, by the grace of God, responds well to those who don't treat them properly. He goes on to say, if possible, so far as it depends on you, and I love the fact that Paul put that in there, be at peace with all men. That means that we are to do everything we can to resolve conflicts. Now, realistically, with some people you cannot And that's why Paul puts that there. If possible. With some people, it's not possible because this is, it takes two to do this. But you do everything you can if there's a conflict, a persecution, somebody who's been horrible to you. You do everything you can to try to resolve this. Practically speaking, it means going to them. Have I offended you? Have have I insulted you? Let's get this resolved. Let's talk about this. Tell me what's bothering you. And and if they tell you something that you have done wrong, then you ask forgiveness and don't do it again. So, he goes on to say, verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. 
or as they say in Australia, the love of God. I was corrected when I spoke there, and I should have said wrong. But never, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Let me tell you, when you're hurt by somebody, you've got to forgive them. That's what this is talking about. It's not our job to get back at them. And that's what we all want to do. That's what I, would, I was doing. I was punishing my mom. I was punishing Michelle. It's not our job to punish anyone. It's our responsibility to forgive. How do we forgive? It's an act of the will. I never feel like forgiving somebody when they sin against me. Never. I do it whether I feel like it or not. And here's what I've learned. If I do what Scripture says, whether I feel like it or not, my feelings eventually will catch up. So do what's right. Don't hold a grudge. It'll destroy you. You hold a grudge. You're not hurting anybody else. You're really not punishing them. It'll destroy you. you. The Lord won't answer your prayers. You'll put yourself in a prison. Don't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And it's disobedience. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. The Lord will deal with these people. How? I don't know. When? I don't know. It's really not my problem. My, my responsibility, your responsibility, is to love them. Show the love of Christ. I mean, isn't this what Jesus did when he was crucified? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, we are to love those who are horrible to us. We are to love our enemies, he said. But it's more than, more than that. Just, okay, I'm going to love them, but I'll avoid them. I won't see these people. No, no. The next verse says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. So you do something tangible for your enemy. That takes the grace of God. Do something tangible. It may not be food. It may be what, whatever kind. Of, what, do, what do they need? If you can meet it, do it. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. Now here's a, an interesting verse, a statement. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on their head. This does not mean that you... Uh, that you, you are, are giving them a guilt trip. This is not that at all. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you, um, you're, you're making them feel bad. What, what does this mean? I'm going to read from Michelle's notes because I didn't remember this when I taught it. Here's what she said. She said, uh, he commands us to feed your enemy. If he's hungry, give him a drink. If thirsty, in doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Obviously, he's not saying that you set your enemy's head ablaze. That would be a kind thing to do. Nor is this just to heap a giant guilt trip on a person. She writes, the culture in Bible lands from ancient times was if your fire went out in the night, you would need to borrow some live hot coals from a neighbor to resist, to restart rather your fire. They typically carried pans on their head. So if his neighbor heaped burning coals in a pan for a person to carry home, it was an act of kindness. A practical way of not letting evil overcome you by wrongdoing is to do a kind act. And so, so forth. So the point is, whatever kindness you can bestow on someone, you do it. Why? Because the gospel has changed you. And ladies, that's the point of this. If you've been changed by the gospel, if Christ, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, and His righteousness has been applied to you, then God has come into your life and He's changing you. Evidence that change by loving people, 
by not holding a grudge against them, by being doing kind things to them. That's why Paul says, verse 21, he concludes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Only a true Christian can do that. Now, you've got to make sure if you're a true Christian. You've got to make sure, have I really trusted Christ as my Savior? Have I, have I turned aside from thinking that my, my church attendance, my good deeds, my kindness will get me to heaven? None of that will get you to heaven. If that could get you to heaven, then why did Jesus come to die for sinners? I mean, what, if good works could get you to heaven, then he made the biggest mistake in dying for sinners. He died for sinners because that's the only way any of us could be saved. Because Christ paid on the cross, paid the price for sin. Our responsibility is to repent of our sin from whatever we're aware of that that we've done wrong. Turn from that and turn to the Savior, trusting Him alone for salvation. When that takes place, then Romans 1 through 11 is extended to you, God's mercies. And then Romans chapter 12, you begin to live this out as God enables you. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for this magnificent chapter. We thank you that your word addresses, Lord, these very practical issues. We do struggle with people who mistreat us. We do struggle with treating everyone equally and being kind to all. We do struggle with thinking too highly of ourselves. But Lord, if this is in your word, then you you give us the enablement to think and act properly. So I pray that for each one of us here, help us to uh, apply these truths to our lives, to put them in practice, to not hold grudges against anyone. And Lord, if you've forgiven us in Christ, then who are we to not forgive others who might sin a little bit against us? We've sinned so much against you, and yet you forgive us. So I pray that you'll take these truths, help us to digest them, Live them out. I pray for anyone here who may not know Christ as their Savior, that you'll open their hearts to your gospel and they'll come to faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.